0: the Bane Free Radio
1: Hour. On the podcast, billionaires take to space and one man's quest to rid the new world of slavery. Plus, we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Live Free or Die, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It is a pleasure to have you along. I'm Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afsharad. This week, we bring you part two of Dave Butler's interview with Larry Correa and Steve Diamond about Servants of War, their new military fantasy novel, which kicks off the Age of Raven series. But first, the news. April 1st is just around the corner and the mass market paperbacks will soon hit bookstore shelves. Let's take a look. First up, Rich Man's Sky by Will McCarthy. An international team of elite military women masquerading as space colonists are set to infiltrate and neutralize the largest and most dangerous project in human history. But nothing is that simple when rich men control the sky, as everyone involved is about to discover. And we also have 1636 Calabar's War by Charles E. Gannon and Robert E. Waters. Domingos Calabar started out as a military advisor for the Portuguese in Brazil, but these days the Portuguese have a new label for Calabar, traitorous dog. Now Calabar helps the Dutch fleet strike at Portuguese and Spanish interests on land and sea. Larry Kreia is probably best known for his Monster Hunter International series, but the action-packed tales of Owen Pitt and crew are but one facet of his far-ranging talent. To celebrate the release of Kreia's newest novel, Servants of War, with Steve Diamond, we're offering discounts on all of his non-MHI backlist, including the Grim Noir Chronicles, the Saga of the Forgotten Warrior, and more. Sale ends March 31st at midnight, and this discount is available wherever Bain ebooks are sold. And that's it for the news.
2: As we meet Basili, he sort of seems like a robot, um, which then maybe increases a little bit of the unease when later he doesn't act quite like a robot anymore. That's right. That's um, right. Yeah. Um, well, okay. So go, now. By the way, Golem, we're we're saying G O L E M, not Golem with two L's. Golem, my precious, right?
3: That, yeah, yeah. There's there's no precious here.
2: So that gets us back around kind of the idea of magic and this idea of golems is it's not everything magical is not a is not a golem, but but this is a big central idea in the in the book. First of all, we actually do see one full on golem uh tiny
4: one it even is a weapon
2: yeah tiny but i think what larry said was even it is a weapon of mass destruction yeah there we go that's right sorry a little laggy they're
4: they're a killing machine yeah oh sorry about that no it's yeah yeah, i mean so basically the magic system uh, how this is working is there nicodemus is the master of this but it's it's using the spirits of the dead as magic fuel um to power things and, and to create different effects and uh, that's that's one reason why they want to invade hell there's a lot of dead people there <laughs> but uh the, the golems the way the golems work is the, the true golems created by the, the lost tribe they are super powerful they're terrifying they are i mean they usually they'll make them like you know 20 30 feet tall and then they're just basically Godzilla. And they are virtually indestructible, and they move very fast, and they just can destroy an army by themselves. It's why this one city state has been destroyed. You can take fragments of that golem and you can use it to power uh, lesser creations, which is what Ilarian winds up in a unit of. Uh, where they basically build these big metal suits um, because they, these are not thinking machines like a golem is a, a, go, a golem thinks a golem a golem can solve problems okay and do and and take orders these are just machines uh, but they're powered by by fragments of dead golems uh, and so they have these big machines made out of dead golems and they need a pilot however you have to have someone to drive it um, and they have to be very physically strong to do it which is why Alarian, the farm boy, the Miller's son, gets uh, picked for this unit because he's the right size. Because you have to, uh, the because the, the suits are made for they're very very large, so they're made for big people, and uh, and you have to be very extremely physically strong uh, to drive one of these. And so Alarian's picked for this unit. And what it is is um, the way the golem magic works. You know, there's no such thing as a free lunch. So as these golems take damage in battle. then as they move they get hotter and hotter and hotter it creates heat and so what happens is they they cook the pilot the pilot's basically riding in an oven as as it as it goes into battle so they have to cycle through pilots as the battle continues uh because these machines these objects as they're called they're they're too valuable to just stop and cool off so when it gets too hot they'll pop the hats throw the pilot out uh, throw some water in to you know steam it out, and then they'll throw the next guy in while the other guys are doing repairs and reloading the guns. Close the hatch and it goes right back to battle. And then uh, these things are so cumbersome, Like a real golem is like an athlete. These things are clumsy. it's like it's like a farm tractor, okay? like an old old-fashioned tractor. And so these crews, uh, the pilots and the crews, oh, have to run along beside the golem, yeah, yeah. clearing its path. Uh, yeah, it, it, they're great. It's, it makes for some amazing, fun, awesome, awesome battle sequences. Yeah.
3: You know, a, a long time ago, um, back when when the movies were important and relevant, there was a, um, you remember the third Matrix movie?
2: I recently rewatched it, so to my chagrin, I remember it uncomfortably. So,
3: so for for the most part you know there's some there's more than more issues than we can care to discuss for those movies right but there's the scene where uh all the dudes are in the kind of the the weird mechs that for some dumb reason don't have armor in the front sure whatever so they have those mechs and all the big the big squid monsters are coming in and the scene that really stuck out to me that, that that still that i still love is the scene where the guy runs out with the cart cart of ammo sure and he's he's steering it through everything to to reload these guys' guns now suit design aside that's a really cool scene and and when when larry and i were talking about this that's where kind of the idea of these crews came from the idea that that there's these crews that you know while one person was driving the rest were kind of like there behind it like huddling behind the kind of the the energy shield for lack of a better term and and loading it you know loading the weapons and um you know more importantly clearing debris out from in front of it to make sure that you know things don't they don't get stuck and fall <clears> over um, again remember this is totally not russia where everything is rationed everything is terrible so um these guys are lucky they actually are wearing clothes. Like they don't have any weapons. They have nothing. Their their most important item is a shovel. And so, you know, they're they're out there constantly clearing out, you know, clearing the way in front of them. Because if these golems fall, you know, face forward or back, or heaven forbid worse, backwards, you know, they, you know, it's, 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 you know, they fall in and they can't get up. So um they they become their whole strength is moving together as a wall which is what their unit is called
0: the
3: wall their whole strength is moving together as this unified wall that is is more or less impenetrable by the almasians whose technology is better their guns have longer range um but the Kolokolians have the wall and so it can go forward now if a piece of that wall falls down like in any fantasy story if the wall's breached well you're, you're screwed so that's kind of the idea, and that, that's kind of the idea of how this, this whole idea of the golems and their importance um, in the story and in this world and in this war kind of came about, um, all from, partly from a, an interesting scene in an otherwise bad movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: yeah, so, so uh, I love that hilarion's prized possession for maybe a third of the book is a shovel. Yeah. uh he carries his shovel around at one point he's like i can't forget who but he says you know take good care of the shovel or something and he hands it i think it's the first time he's thrown in the suit right is he hands yeah. the shovel off to take good care of my shovel so yeah. so we see him before he's ever in the suit or, or we see him in in it's a long rigorous process of of weeding out people who were unfit and training and there's these some savage scenes with war dogs and but when we get out to the front which by the way is basically a, it's like seas of mud right yeah. is what it is and and the trenches have numbers and it's like trench 302 and we're going to take back trench 302 today if we succeed then tomorrow we're going to try and take back trench 303 right mm-hmm. and so we see Hilarion with a shovel and he's out there you know this log is going to trip the object right he's assigned to work with object 12 they have numbers he's out there moving uh you know moving the log or pulling bodies out of the way uh until you know uh, there are enough dead operators that he's up and they slosh water inside the cockpit and throw him into object number 12. (laughs) um it's very cool um all right, so that's that's the Tsar's big weapon, right, is, is uh, these fragments of golems, which appear as basically runes, and those who are able to do magic may see light coming out of these runes, um, built onto these massive mech-like suits of armor. They're mechs. They're, they're magical mechs in a diesel pump setting
4: uh you know i love that you know i love max i don't know how many books now that that's been a thing (laughs) no no so uh so what about the Almatians?
2: they don't have a wall uh what are they fighting with what have they fought with in the
4: past what's what's the new threat from them um well the Almatians, their main thing for the longest time was uh the technological superiority. they have better guns uh we actually have a gunsmith character that we we get to meet but uh uh, they use longer-range rifles that they shoot faster, they're more fragile, but they also have better artillery. And for the longest time, they have used gas. Uh, they've experimented with poison gas, but it wasn't that strong. Um, they used this gas that was basically more of an irritant. Uh, you know, it would make people sick, but it didn't really you know kill people unless there was exposure. And they walked the wall through how to combat that. the, the objects. They, they have vents that could be closed and then they'd be sealed inside. So, so they try to gas the objects, but the objects would just basically walk through and then they'd be in the clear before the air inside the, the coffin sized cockpit ran out. Well, Natalia is on a scouting mission towards the beginning of the book, and um, she sees the Almatians new gas that they're working on. And as they as they test it with artillery shells on a field of sheep and it melts the sheep. I mean, it melts. This, this new stuff. So basically we went with like, like, you know, tales of mustard gas, uh, you know, uh, at the end of the war. And uh, we, we turned the, you know, we turned the knob up to 10 and then broke it off. Um, this stuff is, is just, it's death, it's, it's, it, it's death fog, it's Almatian death fog. And uh, Natalia tries to warn the empire what is coming. And, uh, you know, but the, you know, the, the czar can't be bothered. <laughs> <laughs> you can just get more soldiers. Yeah.
3: I was going to say they're all, they're all about science and they're all about, you know, science and technology and using that to their to their advantage. Um, and and well, there's yeah, a this,
4: reason for that. Yeah, we, we get into a little bit because the, the sisters pick different tribes. Um, the sister we talk about the sister of nature the Baba Yaga the sister that jumped in on the that took over the Almatians she's the sister of logic Uh, she was the thinking sister so the first sister was the you know the sister of nature creation that kind of thing the second sister was like the sister of thought and uh, uh, consistency and logic and so her people that she adopted they don't really get the blessings of magic as much Um, but they're they they'll kill you in a whole lot of other ways. Yeah. They'll kill you with engineering. <laughs>
3: Pretty much. Yeah, yeah weaponized math.
4: Yeah.
2: So okay, so the third sister and uh, is is particularly associated with hell. Yeah. Um, she's l- she's kind of she's still kind of angry. <laughs> you know, it's not by choice. Uh, so um. So, uh, by the way, it's interesting kind of Greek echoes there where Hades, Poseidon, and Zeus divide up the world among them, right? I like that. Um, A little bit of
3: that. A little bit of of our spin on uh, on some Cain and Abel action, too. hmm. Um, You know, except for with two sisters, there were three. Two ganged up on one and murdered the crap out of her. Um, Only she's pissed. Yeah. Um, Because... I mean, they're gods. Like, wh- what are you going to do? It's not like they, they totally die yet. Right.
4: Well, so she, um, actually, I can't give away too much about her original sphere of influence because that would, um, that'd give away too much at the end of the book. Yeah. But, um, so each sister had kind of a sphere, you know, so one represents kind of like uh, the beginning and the other represents kind of like uh, evolution and the other is like, you know, the, the, the next stage before she got murdered. And then she just totally flipped the switch because she's pissed. Yeah. So there's a at the
2: end near the end, in the last third, uh, when our our point of view characters have basically all come together, uh, there's a they take a shortcut through hell, so we get to see hell. Uh, now, what is hell like? Delta Utah. <laughs> That's
3: say. Okay. Yeah, good stargazing, That's what you're
2: saying, and a maverick.
3: (laughs) (laughs) No, you know it's it's uh the the way that these people see it now, um, is that it's just a it's a veritable wasteland. Um, you know there's there there's no there's no day night cycle. Um, it's just an endless red burning. Not really a sun, just. An endless red, burning light, um, and you know it's it's flat endlessness until it changes into a new sort of awfulness, um, and that's where a lot of the monsters come in. Um, you know, in 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 the hellscape, we we show glimpses of the of the fairy tale monsters in this book um, in a few locations, uh, right at the very beginning. Um, Uh, an instance during the kind of the the trench warfare section in the middle. And then it goes really hard and heavy in the, in the third chunk in the third act. Yeah. Um, You know, both, I mean, you're, you're going to be hard pressed to find two guys who love monsters more than me and Larry do. And, uh, and, and Larry loves gunning them down and, and I love creating terrible, horrible things that kill people. And so, because um, I, I mean I'm a horror guy at my roots, right? So creating weird, creepy, horrible, terrible, vaguely Cthulhuid monsters, um, you know, that's what I love to do. Yeah. And so this hellscape, it just gets progressively worse and worse. It, when it changes, it's never for the better, ever. It's always for the worse. And these characters they trek through that. Um, now for you know for spoiler reasons. Won't say why they're there or why they're taking this slight detour but uh but yeah it's it's very interesting to write because it's it's hell from a physical presence it's hard for them but it's also hell from a from a mental standpoint for for many of these characters um you know in whatever religion you talk about hell hell is often a, a very real manifested item but very often it's always it's it's a personal thing that 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 kind of claws at the inside of a person's mind, whether you know through their fears, through their through their doubts, through their the things that they feel guilt about, and and that's very much what we wanted to channel in this in that section of the book. Is what is this hell for them, um, and was it always this way? We don't know.
4: Yeah, I actually really like that portion of the book because I thought I thought it was like one of the best parts with Kristoff, yeah. where it really kind of forces him to evaluate uh his existence uh too because larian that's that's like what forges him into the man you know that everybody else is like uh you know because this, this this book is about him going from uh, you know farm boy to to war hero and it's that section there where it's just like like he's the guy that he, he's just dependable and it doesn't it, it, the universe can't break him you know he'll bend but and, don't break yeah so. and it
3: tries and it, it tries. tries hard oh it's just brutal
4: that's that that last portion is insane yeah <laughs> i like that part that was a great part yeah, that's that's great. A,
2: it's a fun read can can we talk about ghouls is that two
4: spoilers should we talk about ghouls and kind of the because we sure. see them we see them well, in yeah. you know actually i, I like those because i actually steve used them in his uh in his short story originally yeah and uh and so um the idea being is that, that that one of the one of the fairy creatures that still crosses over commonly are basically these corpse eater things and, and, and if you look at like folklore from around the world like every folklore uh, every culture has some sort of. Uh-oh. Basically undead carry on monster that preys upon bodies.
2: Yeah, so we see them. Uh,
0: uh,
4: oh. There we go. Um, I can't But basically, like if you're a criminal and you murder somebody, that's okay. You don't really need to worry about, about me or did we lose Dave. Uh, yeah,
3: we I'm, lost you there for a sec.
4: Oh, you lost me or Larry?
3: No, we lost Larry, I think.
2: Yeah, okay. Um, but what happens is when you lag, then <laughs> oh, oh. we get you and you just you oh, sorry. really fast and catch, catch up. up. So I think it's okay. Okay. So,
3: so in general the idea is you know these these ghouls can cross freely because they're attracted to death and death is something that's it's universal um and so you know it doesn't matter how far these fairy creatures have been pushed um outside of this world death is still there death is always a constant and they're drawn by it and they feed on it and like what larry i think what larry was saying was um and and I talk about this in my in my short story is um, if you're if you're kind of a criminal mastermind or or just a thug and you kill someone in an alley, it's cool. Just leave them there. You don't need to worry about disposing the body. It'll get disposed of for you. Um, the The scary part of this though is when you think about trench warfare. Um, if you're if you're not dead in the trenches, sometimes that's the lesser of the two evils, um, and sometimes the ghouls aren't that picky. Sometimes, if you're close enough, they'll swim up through whatever portal they came through, and um, you know, and they'll they'll grab you, like through the wall of a trench. Um, and there's a whole scene where where some ghouls show up, um, and it's just complete bedlam. Um,
4: and yeah, when stuff gets- they're horrible. When stuff gets too bloody, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a feeding frenzy for sharks.
3: Yep, that's exactly it.
4: Yeah, and, 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 and I hate sharks. sharks.
3: <laughs> and I hate sharks. That's that's part of where this came from. Uh, yeah,
4: and so you turn up enough destruction uh, <laughs> in the trenches in one day, and then all of a sudden it just, well, actually there'll be an effect in this world called what's called a bloodstorm, um, where basically there's been enough death at one time in one place. That the world's split, and uh, and stuff just gets insane. And at that point, both both sides, both armies, are like, "Okay, we're out for a while." Yeah, yeah. You get
2: kind of a de facto truce because yeah. no one wants to go back in the trenches and then run into the ghouls. Right. Yeah,
4: because they'll eat they they eat both sides. Yeah, <laughs> they don't care. Yeah, yeah.
3: Everyone tastes like chicken to them.
2: so uh so the the object this is just a very small aside i think but the object works a little differently in hell is because of the different connection hell has with death i mean what's can you can you comment on what's going on there it's interesting
4: well we didn't reveal we didn't reveal everything about the magic system in the first uh in the first book uh, you know, I like to stream that out too. You know, like, you know, like I've I've done that before. Like hard magic, it takes me three books to explain where magic comes from. Um, but uh, yeah, so the object is powered by a fragment of a golem. And if you remember, golems were uh, uh, powered by people, um, and, and, and in the case of the 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 lost tribes, they were volunteers uh, who de- who were defending their people. And uh, so these fragments are basically chunks of ghosts, but they're not a whole. They're not a whole spirit. It's not a whole person. It's just a fragment of a person. I mean, at one point we meet a ghost. that's basically like one fifth of a, of a guy, you know, and uh, and it's not it's not a good existence. Um, and so what happens is um, the objects are powered by these things. And when object 12 uh, takes its detour through hell, um, it gets closer to the source uh, of uh, of power. And Alarian's piloting this thing, and uh, at that point, this thing it was like we shift gears and we go from like farm tractor to sports car. And uh, <laughs> in Alarian's hands, these yeah. yeah Steve oh okay we lost you Dave or I was uh, did I freeze
2: yeah you, you did but but ah. no no but I think you got to the main point which was uh, Elarian having kind of mastered the suit in in the the real world right the middle world kind of goes into hell and like it's a power up for him so on the one hand threats rise uh, sharply but on the other hand he then is sort of uniquely in a position to defend them against the things that are in hell yeah uh, it was very cool um let me ask you about a uh, at the risk of sounding hoity-toity um i'm going to ask about a literary motif okay the uh the raven right from the beginning the raven is a marked and repeated uh image in the book um and uh, i mean we we have ravens cawing characters kind of commenting on the ravens um the the pilots of the objects right they they jump into as larry's talking about these like ovens they get burned and so the the wall you know part of their ethos as a unit is they go cover these burns with massive tattoos so the veterans are you know, full body tattoos. And Ilarian's first tattoo, when he gets gets burned, he goes and gets a raven, right? <laughs> so, uh, so tell us about that. What's what? what why ravens? What what? Uh, what do they mean to you? What do they mean to the characters?
3: Odin. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's you where know, that
4: came from for me. Originally, was Odin.
3: Yeah, there, there's a little bit of that in there. Um, Ravens are known to be extremely smart. Um, They're they're bigger than crows, Um, so they I don't know they to me they they just have more presence than than just going to a to a tiny stupid crow. Um, But uh, but you know part part of it is it's it's the eyes and ears. You know you know uh, you know kind of what 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 Larry said with the whole Odin aspect. you know, the eyes and ears of the Baba Yaga, um, to me, that, that's more or less what it is, and then, and then there's a, there's a a little bit, when you get into hell, to the hell portion of the book, there's a little bit of a perversion of that, that motif as well, that we bring in, Um, and that's absolutely intentional, Um, but no, it's, you know, it's, it's the idea of, of the omen of, of what it means. Every time it shows up, and there's, and, and, By the end, the character, you know, one of the characters jokes about it, they're like, no, when it shows up, it's never a good thing. Um, It's, uh, uh, you know, it's like the movie Cabin in the Woods, where, you know, at the end when everything is going nuts and uh, they're in that underground bunker scene and all the elevators are coming up and there's like the, the ding as the as the elevators come. And every time you hear that, Dean, you're like, oh, crap, there's another crazy monster coming in a way. It's that it's 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 that whole motif, um, you know, and I don't know, there's there, there's just something powerful about about a large blackbird and and the intelligence behind it, you know, that it's it's far more intelligent than what it means, whether by itself or because there's a freaking Baba Yaga looking through its eyes. So that that's kind of what it is. Um, you know, and I'm I'm I may like old horror guys like Edgar Allan Poe. Just saying.
4: Yeah. Well, and the thing with the tattoos was really cool. Um oh,
3: that's so cool. We
4: came up with that when we were brainstorming, and then it was actually kind of neat because we decided that basically there was this old uh, Romani woman who was a she was a, a fortune teller and but but that was her art was the tattoos, and so she would follow around the wall as they were deployed to different places. And she's just kind of like a fixture where she, um, she does these battlefield tattoos for them. She's like the tattoo artist for the wall. But each one is particular to that soldier. And, and everything's symbolic. I mean, these people have symbology for everything. And in this world where the, the raven is seen as the eyes and ears of the Baba Yaga, uh, and you know, Hilarion's marked by that, but you know, he's the only one that knows that. until so the fortune teller basically just announces it to the world that he is the property of the Baba Yaga, you know yeah. that that it's uh, like she, he he's marked. So he's he's marked spiritually before this, but then when he's in battle, he's he's actually physically marked that uh, she owns his ass. <laughs> oh, yeah.
3: oh yeah, yeah. Very, style,
4: very cool.
2: <laughs> um, so look. Uh, if, if, if we haven't been clear enough about this it's action pack it's funny it's sort of gory and ghoulish it's very stylish uh anything else you guys want to say about the book that we haven't said already anything you think readers should know
3: mm. Ooh, um you know when, when larry and i talk to people about this when we're kind of just out and about we, we always kind of pitch it as you know the witcher meets 1917 um you know, and so if if you if you enjoy that kind of thing, you know, the, the idea of these these really really dark fantasy, dark fairy tale worlds, um, you know, the happy fairy tale stuff doesn't work for me. Um, you know, I'm all about the really dark and twisty, horrible uh, fairy tale stuff. And and this was just our ability to go nuts. I mean, look, everybody and their dog's read Larry. They know what he brings to the table. Um, they know that he has. They know that his action is going to be amazing, and they know that his characters are going to be awesome and nuanced. And so, what I hope is that they see a little bit darker edge to it with with you know with me co-writing with him. You know, show some some of my dark, twisty horror roots, and uh, and and I, I really hope that that people get that out of it. Um, but yeah. That, that, that's my thoughts I don't know about you Larry what do you think
4: if you're there sorry I all I heard was I, I just heard robot voice <laughs>
1: it was I just lost it. over
4: to you Is there anything else you wanted to say oh okay so got cursed zoom meetings but uh no um, I actually I had a lot of fun working on this project with Steve and, and like like um I like you say is. He is darker than I am. Uh, he writes darker than I do, and so I think this was an interesting thing with this world. It required a darker vision than I would normally run with. Um, and and uh, I mean, it came out great. Like for example, someone read the ER, and he's like, "Hey, that's a great point." We can-
3: oh, <laughs> so Larry, Larry froze there for a sec um he's
4: more rats about, <laughs> so let me see if I can people in like, the next one I mean it just
3: yeah so so Larry died there again um the uh the, you know one of the in one of the e arcs, one of the people said that there weren't enough for, like rats killing people and eating people in the trenches, and we're like, well. Well, no, that's because we don't have that many point of views that are actually in the trenches right now. But that's cool. I mean, I, I'm more than willing to write that scene in the sequel, right? Like, I mean, look, if you want me to be more violent, I'll be more violent. Like, you know, twist my arm a little bit, won't you? You know, it's one of those throw me in the briar patch moments. Um, you know, I, you know, the funny thing is, is I think there were a few times when when maybe I was a little too dark and twisty and Larry had to kind of pull back just a little bit. He's like, "Steve, Steve, let's let's pump the brakes just a little. You don't need to be that dark." So,
4: yeah, there were <laughs> there were a few bits where it's like it's like, "I don't know, man, you're going to scare too many people away with this stuff." <laughs> that's excellent. Well, that's a good transition
2: uh the sequel. So this book uh is a complete adventure in itself. Like you say, it is in, in some important ways, it's the story of the transformation of Hilarion from being the Miller's son from Siberia, from not Siberia, to uh, being sort of the hero of the wall, right? And, uh, and, and, and clearly it sets up for more stories battling with Nicodemus and other powers um uh what what do you want to tell us about uh about the sequels uh titles direction things to look forward to rats eating people in trenches apparently
3: well that's definitely going to be there now (laughs) no you know I, i i um we have we have plenty of ideas um when we were when we were finishing up the edits and the drafts of this book um, Larry and I we we naturally started talking about okay well well what comes next um, and so I, I think we're going to go there there's there's a lot of room to be to be explored I mean um, I mean we haven't seen anything in Almesia proper yet we haven't seen anything in Praja proper yet um, you know Larry and I really really want a scene about golems destroying things in a shipyard just because that sounds cool um you know and obviously more horror with rats but uh and 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 we want you know i i definitely want to uh want to introduce some more monsters into it you know thin that line you know that that barrier that's kind of been pushed pushed out you know that's that's been thickened i guess between between the hell and and, and this world that they're living in, you know, seeing that thin and have, have that kind of confluence of, of horrible, terrible fairy stuff, plus horrible, terrible trench warfare stuff. Um, I think that that's all very interesting. Um, if uh, you know, hopefully if, ho- hopefully we get the chance to, to write this and, and many, many more, um, cause gosh, I mean, I had a blast writing this book. It was so great. It was so fun.
2: Yeah. Um, do you want to share the work title, or is it premature for that? Uh,
3: no, I mean the, you know the the second the secondary book when we were coming up with titles for this one, it turns out both Larry and I are really bad at titles. Um, and and then every time every time Larry didn't want to to do something, he was like, "Oh, hey, don't worry, Steve will take care of that." Um, <laughs> whether it was the title or the the back cover copy oh. or or the romance scene like like towards the end of the book he's like he sends me the draft and he's like oh see yeah everything's pretty much yeah we we i think we're good to go oh there's just this one scene you need to write um you'll see it when you get to it i'm like oh i wonder what that is <laughs> i get there and it's like steve insert romance scene here I'm
4: like
0: oh
3: but uh
4: that's the cool part about being the senior author though you can do stuff like that it's awesome
3: (laughs) that's right but you know when we were coming up with the title for this one um the title for this book actually came from um from one of kipling's um uh, epitaphs of war that he wrote you know from world war one and uh, i don't remember which epitaph it's like seven or nine or something like that anyway we were coming up with that, Um, we were floating a bunch of titles, and we floated this one, and then the other one we floated was Instruments of Violence, and Tony said, yeah, those are both great. Use one for this book, and use one for this, for the follow-up. We went, (laughs) follow-up? So, um, so, you know, it, it it works well, Um, and, and I think that, I think that it'll set the stage nicely for just how how crazy this war is gonna get.
2: Yeah. Fantastic. Well, hey, once again, uh the book is Servants of War, uh, out now from bain Books in hardcover and uh all ebook formats, uh DRM free at Bain.com. Uh Larry, Steve, uh, thank you both very much. Oh, thank you. Oh, thanks,
1: Steve. And now, another installment in John Ringo's Live Free or Die.
0: Epilogue The starfire drifted amongst the residue of the battle, so powered down as to appear as nothing more than more scrap, as Père La played on the speakers, and Tyler nursed a snifter of Centennial and a Cuban. Paws and Myrmidons picked among the shredded ships, searching for survivors, moving the scrap into a more manageable configuration, salvage crews doing a survey to see what was still usable and what might as well be melted down for the fabbers. Tyler had turned off the news after one glance. For the first time, Earth had emerged unscathed from a battle, and the masses of people who would never set foot in space were dancing in the streets. There was, for a few minutes, nothing but praise for the Troy and the Sapple and even LFD. It pissed him off. Soon enough, the mobs would be calling for blood again. Mobs were mobs, whether they were called hooligans or activists or pundits. They just followed the latest fad, the latest mood. They never looked at the future. They feared the sky. The Troy had shrugged off the incoming fire, and even if it had lost its own fighting ability, that was just a matter of completing phase one. But if the enemy had fired all those thousands of missiles at Earth, some of them, many of them, would have gotten through the defenses. Senator Gulick had a point. Earth's defenses were on the wrong side of the gate. 20,000 tons of osmium. Well, that was just a matter of infrastructure. He stubbed out his cigar. Pilot, set course for the gate. Destination Wolf 359. Aye, sir. Time to visit the Night Wolves.
1: That was John Ringo's Live Free or Die, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks, as always, to audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Thanks to Dave Butler and praise, thanks, and gratitude to Larry Korea and Steve Diamond. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.